I'm Blake Howard. This is the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. A Michael Mann film-inspired podcast tackling everything about the 1992 film, The Last of the Mohicans, through a very specific lens. It's finale. And oh boy, is it an all-timer of a finale. Soaring score from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones's adaptation of The Gale. Unbelievable performances by Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Russell Means, Eric Schwieg, Jody May, Steve Waddington. Lensed so stunningly and staggeringly by the legendary Dante Spinotti and directed by Michael Mann. We have a war party of cinema's sharpest minds along for the ride, all culminating with the mountainous director himself, Mr. Mann. Welcome to the show. Live from Spain, outside of Barcelona, is my na- my next guest and uh, another um, huge guest from our One Heat Minute uh, journey, uh, Opus, uh, is a writer for all things KQED, uh, which is NPR and PBS in San Francisco, if you guys don't know what that is uh, or internationally not sure what that is. Um, She's the host of the Cooler podcast, and uh, and she joined me for one of the most pivotal minutes of the One Heat Minute podcast, uh, which is part. She was a part of the stream of consciousness through the tunnel scene. I think she followed Matt Zolazites or, or led in Matt Zolazites, and uh, today she's going to be talking to me about all things that are the magnificent last minutes of the Last of the Mohicans. My guest today is Carly Severne. Carly. Thank you so much for joining me on your holiday. You're my second guest from a holiday. So thank you so much for taking the time. I can't believe that. <laughs> You're a second guest. I'm uh, coming to you live from a, a hotel room in Spain and uh, there's nowhere I'd rather be and there's nothing I'd rather be talking about. <laughs> look, that's, that's really nice. That's really nice. So I know how you feel about heat. You and I connected about 60 episodes into the podcast of 170. Um, you discovered uh, the One Eight Minute podcast, founded on your commute, um, was so um, uh, very, very extremely grateful that you profiled the show very early on, um, and a lot, you know, a lot, a lot was made of your article. A lot of angry minute podcasters were uh, <laughs> reached out. Um, uh, oh, indeed, they, they were very keen to tell me that there were other minute by minute podcasts. A fact of which I was fully aware. <laughs> and also, what was actually mentioned in the interview. Um, so, Indeed. so, so that was, that, <laughs> why but, would they actually read the article? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very, very grateful for that. But, you know, this, this is a, um, as I said to, as I said to you, sort of in the lead up, uh, talking about Mohicans, talking about Mohicans and, and, and the thing that resonates most with me is how drastically different, um, it is to other Michael Mann movies, just purely in period setting and, 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 and sort of form, um, it also is so akin to them on an elemental level. It's like the elemental version of a lot of his stories and sort of his un- its most unafraid to be its most direct um, uh, in its form. And also, 
I just think the ending is just utterly magnificent. I just, you know, it's it's one of those movies. It's so fast. It's insanely uh, percussive, and it's it it this it devolves into this transcendent piece of silent cinema art in the ending, and and that's what I've really wanted to grapple with with some of the wonderful guests on this show, including yourself, because I just think it's magnificent. Oh, it's incredible. And it's funny when you mentioned that this was your next project, I kind of I sat myself down and I thought, well, why is this ending so good? Why is it up there with heat? I mean, I don't think there I mean, for my money, there is no better ending. There's no better finale in cinema than heat. But if there is, it's probably The Last of the Mohicans. It's close. It's really close. It's really it's, up there. It's a real toss up there. It's really, really it's, it's it's close. Well, why is it so good? I mean, even people who have seen this movie once um, and didn't have the desire to see it again, which quite frankly I can't understand. But even people who have only seen it once, they they always say, "God, that ending's so good." And I really tried to interrogate myself about why, and I think it comes back to um, its focus. I think it's as you say, it's it's this kind of it's one journey. It's one mission. It is not your kind of Avengers style multi finale where there's tons of things going on at one time. And there's five people that all have a different quest to undertake before the movie can end. And you kind of, you know, you track back and you follow them. It's one party chasing another party with one goal, um, all scored to this incredible music. I know we're going to talk about the music, but my God, Blake, this music. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, um, Trevor Jones, had a kind of blessing and a curse, I must imagine, as a composer, right? So you get handed the gale, which was actually recommended to Michael Mann by his wife. She's like, I'll listen to this track. It's amazing. You've got to hear it. Michael Mann hears it and goes, this is the score, and just throws that into Trevor Jones's lap. And like, here you go. This is the score. But then he's got to, as a composer, like tear that apart, rip it to pieces and try and arrange it in every conceivable way. Like the the fundamental and foundational melody is like the foundational melody of the whole movie. But I, I can't imagine what it is to then go, okay, I've got to dissect, I've got to rip this apart, I've got to change it to you know, I've got it to be soaring, it's got to be tragic, it's got to be it's got to be every emotional roller coaster on this. It's got to be opaque. It's got to be everything that you could possibly imagine. Um and it's all got to derive from this. And it's I don't know. Maybe he loved it. Maybe it was like that, a great sort of, uh, I get to only play in this sandbox moment, but the score is, yeah, it's the more we talk about it, the more that we talk about it on this show, the more I'm just like, I don't know. There might be, there are very few other scores that are as good holistically. Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. And one of my favorite facts about the score, which is slightly unrelated, is that um, uh, Rennie Harlan liked it so much that he uh, he basically wanted that to be the music to Cliffhanger, um, another <laughs> movie which I may say I adore, but for different reasons. Yeah. And so that's why the music of that, uh, the other Trevor Jones soundtrack to that sounds so similar, because he was basically like, do the same again. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's funny is, and this is like an inside, a bit of an inside baseball movies thing. So um, when when people are editing uh, different films sometimes they have temp tracks and so when they're editing along to a scene they they're using the, a, a famous score from another movie sometimes previous directors will use their last score or like off cuts from a previous um sc- you know score that w- weren't used necessarily or perhaps they were used because they're thinking of their own 
oeuvre or other films that have influenced them. And sometimes they slavishly like actually go, no, that's the score now. And so I think with Rennie Harlan, it was like he was so wedded to it that he's like, well, I've just got to do whatever the hell I can, whatever the hell I can to make it. Well, ex- Rennie wants, Rennie gets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Look, I need to link you up with Garth Franklin, who's got some Rennie stories. Um, so we'll, uh, we might oh, just I want we, this so we, 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 we might sidestep that if we can. But let's talk about, uh, I think, before we, before we kicked off recording, you said, Blake, I want to talk to you about sad women in Michael Mann films. And I think... I, I have to, I have to hear what you have to say because in this moment, uh, in 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 the twelve minutes of this movie, there is some devastating moments for women characters on multiple levels. Um, you know, whether it's watching, you know, Cora watching Duncan self sacrifice, whether it's Alice being put, you know, between, you know, a, a, a valley or Magua. Um, you know, literally with the blood of her lover dripping off of his hands, you know, the choices for women and their agency, there's no good choice, but you've got to make it. Oh, I mean, sad women is the phrase that jumps into my brain whenever I think about this movie. And I don't mean that to sound derisory at all, because um, I think it's important to kind of set context here. I, my love of Michael Mann really developed as, as a young thing growing up back in England, uh, and I think as a teenage girl and as a teenager in general, you just have so much like anomie and so much <laughs> melancholy in your life uh, for no real reason. That's the great thing about being a teenager. You can just be sad because you're a teenager. Um, and it's only later in life that you realize, my God, the privilege to be sad when you have no reason to really be sad. Um, and I can fully hold my hand up to the fact that I think that that is what attracted me so much to not only Michael Mann movies, but Michael Mann characters. Um, I see such, or I saw such similarities between the characters of Cora and Alice in this movie and with Natalie Portman's character in, in Heat Mm. and also Joan Allen's character in Manhunter, these women that just seem to have this deep blueness underpinning everything they did and said. I mean, in, in Natalie Portman's case, I mean, spoiler alert, there, you know, is a, a very real suicide attempt that takes place. Obviously, Alice's suicide attempt is successful in this movie. But I, with that, I just kind of, what I took from that as a teenage girl was that womanhood in in a man's world, and I can mean a man's world and also a Michael Mann's world. A Michael Mann's, a man's world and a Michael Mann's yeah. world. And in Michael Mann's world, you know, womanhood as its own kind of tragedy. That's what I I really picked up on that as a teenage girl. And I do think there was a lot that was informing that because, yes, there is this really tired trope of the the sad, melancholy, uh, beautiful. She's always beautiful. She has to be beautiful if she's going to be sad. You can't just be sad. No. Um, You've got to look good. This is the movies, Carly. No sad people in the movies are ugly. That's the deal. They're beautiful. That's right. but you also get it's it's you know so common throughout literature as well you know this sad waif, um, and you know there's been some great studies done on this and some great writing about it where you know it, all of this stuff this mythology about women emerged from you know very real physical conditions um, sickness I mean tuberculosis uh, just became this epidemic and what TB does it it kills you really slowly that's the horrible thing about TB um, uh, but it, and it kind of preserves you for a a long time so you can be this waif going through life or in the case of you know popular culture going through books going through movies and still looking a certain way so apparently this is where this whole stereotype emerged from this very real 
disease. Um, and, and it is and a also, tired trope. It, it's, uh, it's, look, it's, it's tired now. We can say it's tired, but I think it's tired that, now. And, and I think we, we talk about Michael Mann movies, you know, being deeply authentic. But the, the one thing I will defend in, in Alice, let's just say, because we've got Alice. Alice is always, you know, Cora's got great agency. She's extremely capable. She's, uh-huh. you know, uh, 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 forthright, uh, charming, um, ha- has humility. Um, and Alice is sort of relegated to the background. But the challenge you have is, like, if you did pluck two women in 1757 from the court in London peak of civilization or what they would they self-proclaimed civilization at the time and threw them into the jungle, <laughs> like into the mm-hmm. frontier and had them dropped in the middle of one of these extremely savage and brutal wars, how she's not walking through like a zombie and just completely out of her depth, you know, it, it kind of makes sense. She's with three capable frontiersmen. She's with, you know, what Michael Mann calls Daniel Day-Lewis is like the great American hero, like the frontier hero, like in this moment. So it's just one of those things where you've got this challenge of wrestling with the concept of, you know, accuracy in the portrayal of that. And then also mm-hmm. like what, what it is, but also I think that, you know, but that's, it's, it's just one of those things with Alice, right? You think, oh, she is kind of relegated, but God damn it. Does she not get some, absolutely soaring moments in this movie. Oh, Jody she's incredible. And and herein lies the grand plot twist of my argument here. <laughs> I don't think Michael Mann can be accused of of perpetuating this trope because, I mean, obviously it's it's so natural to want to like defend one of your favourite directors against of course. charges of, you know, cliche I, and stereotype. I, I, get, but... I get charged all the time and the one big one which I just want to draw a line <laughs> in the sand now is that people say, the Red Dragon movie with Edward Norton and older and heftier Anthony Hopkins, which is meant to be a prequel to Silence of the Lambs, and all that other great cast that's directed by Brett Ratner, which is an absolute garbage fire of a movie from minute one to the oh, end. Terrible. I get I get criticized all the time, Carly, for saying that Manhunter's a better movie. And I'm just like, it's not what? a Michael it's not a Michael Mann thing. I go, it's just a better movie. It's a it's oh, a it's better objectively a better It's movie. objectively oh, better. He- it's objectively if you're better. getting emails about that, please just forward them straight to me. <laughs> I'm I'll take care you, of them for I'm you. I'm tagging you in every tweet. Um, but I just, you know, I say, look, I can be objective. There are, you know, good and bad betrayals and particularly that. But I, I've, I've always been I've always been really particularly drawn to Jodie May's character, Alice, in this movie. I think oh, she's just she's wonderful. And, 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 and particularly she was my, in this... my end to this movie, I think. She really, she was the thing that, that drew me in. And I think as I, I grew up a little bit, what I learned with age was these like senselessly sad women in Michael Mann movies who I thought were senselessly sad, they weren't. They had absolute cause and reason for this melancholy. And the thing that I never picked up on, and it's one line, it's a really throwaway line. And to me, it's the whole key to not only Alice's character, but her actions in the final scene it's when it's it's about an hour earlier in the movie when Duncan comes into um, Cora and Alice's I'm quarters. So glad you brought up this scene. So glad oh, you brought up this it's scene. Such a quiet line, and I had to listen to it a couple of times. Um, it's because it is mumbled. I think it's deliberately mumbled as part of the naturalism of what man's going for with his directorial choices. But Duncan comes in. He wants to speak to Cora. Cora says, "Shh, don't wake up, Alice." And then Alice wakes up and says, "No, no." I'll get up. And she says, I cannot be an invalid school girl. And that's the key to the whole thing. She's sick. 
that's the reason why she's so exhausted looking on those treks that they do. Not only are they punishing physically for someone in good physical health, yes. but she's sick. She's dying. This explains so much of what she does in that final scene about the choice that she has to make and why she feels that dying might be a better choice. Um, and that, for me, just unlocked everything. I mean, Natalie Portman's character in Heat, she's not a senselessly sad teen. That kid has real problems. Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, her mom's her mom's really her mom's juiced to the gills uh, on on whatever antidepressants that she can be, and she's being ignored. Um, her father is, you know, essentially abandoning her, and you know, I think um, one thing that still pangs me a little bit talking about Natalie Portman's character and talking about Alice is. Uh, Jedediah heirs who followed up, um, uh, who, who who followed immediately our wonderful Sarah Bartlett from Every Mind, the suicide uh, prevention uh, uh, organization, um, and talking about suicide prevention. Uh, Jedediah said this thing to me: "Is like, where do you think she heard how to commit suicide? You know, why mm. did Michael Mann show her getting in the back of that police car? Do you think they talk shop in the car and forget that there's a little girl in the back that's learning that shit?" That's like a sponge. Um, and I, I, I think about that a lot. And, and I think with Alice, her agency in that moment is there is a really harsh reality. Like there's a hot, like, and, and, and that must be the reality for women at that time. Like the harshest reality. Oh, it, could, it, it couldn't be like, this is man being literal and metaphorical at the same time. It's like literally be nurtured by a guy who's a knife wielding psychopath who is literally murdered your lover like and you can either go and be lying in his bed knowing that at the in an instant he'll kill you if you're an inconvenience or die it's it's a it's a it's a hypnotic tragedy it's like it's Mm. big it's big period epic tragedies it's it's a soaring epic novel tragedy like it's it's just dialed up to that level that it's like it's it's a melodrama and it has to be that and that's that's what life is in these in, in in on this frontier in this kind of melodrama but it's literally Absolutely. and they are su- surprisingly capable for for the situation that they're in i mean yeah. cora you know shoots a guy in the head <laughs> yeah. she leaves tracks so that um ddl and i will be referring to him as ddl throughout this <laughs> so that he can track her like she's no fool um, and I, I, this, I think from the maybe the late 80s, early 90s onwards, there was this strain that I really objected to of historical movies um, kind of saying that, you know, their big reveal was like, oh, we, we bet you thought that the, you know, the, the, the wayfish maid in this was going to be helpful as well. Spoiler alert, she's a trained pirate and she's got a dagger in her blouse and she knows how to use it. <laughs> and the most dumb like depiction of this is i have to say it robin hood prince of thieves where <laughs> maid marion the mary elizabeth master antonio version starts off as this incredible like trained ninja who can fight and wait, then wait. the movie forgets all about that and then she ends up helpless at the end it's wait, just like oh wait. <laughs> uh, but my, my question to you is do you really want to start the tsunami of what's dumb about robin hood prince of thieves on a show with me Listen. right now <laughs> because because literally like one of the great villains of all time like like that's it oh it's, obviously it's, it's like that's let's not even talk right like one of the great villains of all time so we can just completely move Iconic. on from that move on from that 
but yeah, I uh, look, I, I I totally agree. That that movie's a garbage fire on so many levels. But I did actually forget until you reminded me that she was a ninja that she's completely helpless at the end. So I just yeah, I. I it's incredible. Even... Every time I laugh, and I do watch it on a fairly regular basis. <laughs> you're, a, you're a glutton for punishment. I know. Oh, man. I really am. But one last thing I do want to say about Alice is something I noticed on this latest rewatching mm. um, on the plane over to Spain, actually, which may I recommend watching this movie at altitude with a glass of wine in your hand because, my God, it'll just emotionally sucker punch you <laughs> even more. If, than you're, if you're not sobbing, you're just absolutely sobbing through that ending. Oh. I was, and I was worried that like a steward was going to come and check on me. Like, madam, are you all right? We're going to have no, to. No, they cut looked you at off. your screen. But... They looked at your screen and like, oh, it's Mohican, so that's fine. We get it. <laughs> yeah, there we get it. We've seen this before. Oh, it all makes sense. But the one thing that really came out to me in that kind of you know clutching my phone and watching it is um, the use of slow motion because it's so often in the movies used to kind of articulate this kind of male gaze you know sexy lady walking down the street in slow motion look at her Mm. and the way Michael Mann uses it up to the finale is really intriguing because for the majority of the time it's all on men and it's usually always on Daniel Day-Lewis there's another slow motion in the waterfall where Uncas grabs Alice from you know throwing herself off and he grabs her back and they lie down together and the slow motion kicks in but it's focusing on Uncas that's that's the focus of that it's not on Alice so mm. it really is focused on men and by the time that we come to have this incredible use of slow motion on Alice as she's about to make that fateful leap because we're so used to seeing it in battle situations that gaze doesn't seem like objectifying her and her beauty it she's commanding uh, you know it's the way that the shot is framed as well it's really like she's looking directly at us and it's so powerful and i just thought oh that's so michael man to take this you know this trick and just totally turn it on its head yeah it's just underscoring her agency right it's just giving this the massive exclamation mark this is her moment and for better or worse whatever the decision is going to be this is her signature moment of the entire movie like it's it's the payoff for the entire character. And, yeah, I totally agree. The use of slow motion in this... Uh, um, Michael Mann is sort of, you know, apart from being a um, a kind of Eisensteinian, uh, uh, you know, influenced filmmaker, he's also a massive uh, Peckinpah fan. And Peckinpah, you know, used... I love to use slow motion, uh, particularly in, like, death sequences and action sequences and really, like, reinforced and, and, and sort of adjusted what you're feeling in, in, those, in those moments. But I think the, the whole toolkit across this, uh, across this finale, which we'll talk about, but that, that perfection of Alice's face is just everything. It's like you need the slow motion, you want the water trickling, it's Dante Spinotti lighting it to perfection, frame to perfection, the sky behind her. And it's just like, this is, this is the moment. This is, uh, yeah, I, I, t- I completely agree. Some great and other, you know, in amongst this entire scene, there's so many great moments of slow motion. There's even Cora's reaction to Alice's death is like this tweaked, weird slow motion when she's screaming mm-hmm. and, and Chingachagook seeing Uncas is in all in slow motion. You're denied to hear his scream. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty wonderful. I forgot that. Yeah, they, they it goes silent then. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> he doesn't need a word to show you how cranky he is. He's very cranky at that yeah. moment. Um, cranky is putting it mildly. What else about this finale besides Miss Alice in this devastating um, uh, no-win situation still resonates for you in the finale? Well, 
it's funny because I, I looked up. I, I'm not familiar with um, James Fenimore Cooper's novel myself. <laughs> Nor am I. I have not read it. Uh, I, I know Michael Mann doesn't really like it. I know that this version is primarily based on the 1936 film adaptation that he enjoyed way more. Um, there's lots of things about Cooper's novel that he doesn't like, you know, the racism, the justification for the, the wild land grab, essentially. Yes. Um, he points out that Cooper's family were big landowners. So, of course, Cooper would write this novel being like, hey, it's probably best that the white guys have come over and, you know, taken over this land. Yeah, it's, um, it's just one of those one of those hindsight, hindsight of history and, and who's, who's wielding the pen you know, telling the story and having the yeah. political underpinnings in there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and even by the 90s, so really it's, it's just to, um, outlandish. Yeah, I was really interested to see what man changed about the, the source material. And the answer is like a surprising amount. And it really does inform my understanding of the finale as well, because the characters of Cora and Alice are really quite different in the book, apparently. And, you know, Alice's jump does not happen. Um, no. Cora is actually killed at the end of the novel um, yes. by one of the Huron and Alice does not make this decision um, Hawkeye is is not adopted in nope. the in the novel he is he is a white tracker who you know refers to um, Uncas and Chinagachukuk as his companions and like Magua is the big one for me because his backstory in the book is that the reason he hates Monroe in the book is apparently that um, Monroe got him hooked on whiskey and, you know, wow. publicly humiliated him for this. There's no story about Monroe causing the death of his wife and, and you know, losing his, oh, pardon, the, the death of his family and then his wife marries another. Um, that is all for the film. And that, to me, I think addresses a lot of the concerns with representation in this movie. The fact that um, Magua is, he's a fully realized character in this. You know, it's not some kind of cockamamie revenge scheme that scene where West Studi is explaining why he hates the gray hair so much. It's, it's, it's just chilling every time um, because the way he explains it, you kind of think, well, yeah, I kind of see why you're going on this, this, this hell bent quest. Um, and he's I a tragic, that- he's a deeply tragic figure. And I think this is what Michael Mann does. He like takes the elemental stuff. And obviously now once he has that and he's like, okay, well, I'm going to set a story in 1757. What the hell was actually happening? And so then he goes to, history and goes to albany and goes to fort you know fort william henry and goes okay well i need this to be happening i need the french to have this i need to have these they need to have these guns they need to be allied with these with these tribes and then you know if it's mohawk or you know um mahicans and you know i need to know how they would get together and and the linkage with the the family linkage of the three of the guys is you know super important because also it asks it begs the question why would just like a white tracker hang around with these guys for a really long time. They're going to be making money together, obviously, but I think like ha- cementing that connection in, cementing that connection in together, like gives them uh, a reason to stay together, like for them to be so invested. If it's just a monetary relationship, why do they care? You know, it's just one of those things. You just do mm. a couple of slight tweaks and it, it changes it. But it's, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting. It's, it's one of those things that's like the, uh, it underscores, that argument that happens every now and then where people say well why would you approach a remake again and it's like well no you you can really approach it if you've got something really different to say like you want to take some of the essence Mm. but you have something different to say um and this is man clearly going no i've got something really different to say like i'm going to keep it big and sweeping and romantic but it's going to be examining all these different layers and of authenticity of like what what you know um 
you know, what, what, when it was still warring colonial powers occupying the American continent, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I think that with the, the Magua changes to the, the character, it just kind of makes that finale so much richer for me. And especially that, that Cause he's not a bad guy. Is he a bad, is he a bad guy, Carly? Is Magua the bad guy in this movie? You know, uh, teenage Carly thought he was. Adult Carly does not think so. <laughs> no, I, yeah. You know, I, I think that... I completely agree. That Magua was the baddest of bad guys for me when I was growing up. But the more I watch this movie, I'm like, this movie could totally have alternately be titled The Tragedy of Magua. Like, it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's... Yeah, it's a, it's a guy who literally lost everything, goes on a vengeful quest, um, and tries to adopt the behaviours of... You know, he tries to predict the future, tries to pivot to what he feels is going to be the best future outcome for him and his people, mm-hmm. and they don't want to. They don't want to sacrifice what that might look like. They want to yeah. do that. Yeah, and yeah, that's the thing because it is tragic. He ultimately he misjudges and gets it really wrong. And I think that man also keeps in these these really unpleasant parts. But I, I mean, unpleasant's maybe the wrong word, but relentlessly practical parts of Magua's character. And mm. I see that in two things in the finale. The first one is when um, he kills Uncas and just disposes of that body, like tossing, mm. you know, a, a garbage bag over the sides of, of, a, of a van. And it, that seeing that body just slide down the that mountain. That slide like, is from just... that bird's eye view. Yeah. Every time. Oh, so powerful. Horrible. And the second one is when Alice takes that jump and Magua just moves on. It's on to the next thing, on to the next one. How can I keep propelling myself forward? But the trouble is the path that he's propelling himself forward into is straight into the path of Chingachgook and his death. Um, and just the look. I mean, I don't even think it's callousness the way he walks on. It's extreme practicality. It's survival. Um, the way that he just thinks, oh, she jumped. I shall continue now. It's, this is my reality. It's phenomenal every time. Isn't can it, we talk about West Duty for a second? Can we can we talk, talk about West Duty for an hour. <laughs> we can talk. Uh, yeah, look, I, you know, you and I have talked, I think, both casually or and in a recorded fashion around when you take really phenomenal actors and performers and you pit them against other people or you put people around them. So, like Russell Means, who plays Chingachgook, is an activist, not, yeah, not, not <laughs> a traditional actor, but Michael Mann got him in because, you know. Um, uh, of his of his political allegiances, you know, man was it was the American Indian movement, right? Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and you know, standing up to the FBI, and he was like, "What if I did a movie? If I wanted a really powerful figure, um, and I was doing this in the utmost respect to the to the native tribes people, I'd need um, I'd need Russell Means." And so he gets those guys. He's got this rich cast. He's got a cast so good that Pete Postlethwaite just turns up for two scenes. Like that's how good this movie oh, is. Like let's just I love that. And Colomini just <laughs> randomly Colomini. in the background randomly. Um, Young so Jared you, Harris also? Yeah, Jared Harris at the beginning. I, I, said, I actually said that to my wife on a recent rewatch. I'm like, there's your boy, because she's a huge Madman fan um, and really loves Jared Harris's oh. character and the tragedy of Jared Harris in Madman spoilers. Um, really, yep. really shook he's her. He's like 10 years old in this movie. I know, he's a baby. I'm like, and she's like, oh my God, he's so young. I'm like, yes, he's very young. <laughs> he still commands the screen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so what I would say is when I look at Wes Studi in this movie, I, I, I have to reframe him through like, Daniel Day-Lewis, and I say, this is a guy who's essentially at the peak of his powers, um, is really on the upswing. He's about to become, he, he's about to ascend into the territory which we kind of know him now, like, you know, as 
Pacino and De Niro begin to taper off like the conversation really only is like Daniel Day-Lewis towards the end and he kind of owns the 2000s like that's his his part but he continues to do like amazing work between you know between this film and and obviously you know probably arguably one of the best movies of this century which is There Will Be Blood um, but it's this movie with him at the center you've kind of got a platform then to if you're going to be the bad guy you're going to be the antagonist in whatever capacity you've got to be able to stand up to it and I look at where Sudi in absolutely everything he does in this movie and I'm like this guy this guy's the best supporting actor without breaking a sweat in any Oscar year that I've ever seen in any Oscar year and I'll take that and I I don't think I've ever seen I don't think I've ever seen another bad guy who I'm so now as I'm a little bit older, so disappointed with his fate and so mixed and ambivalent about his fate. And I just, you know, the things that he does from like pure savagery to, you know, this robotic reflexive regret to completely, like you said, completely casual about just walking away from death, walking into death being abandoned by his tribe after everything that he does like he's just he's out he's unbelievable he's unbelievable in this movie unbelievable mm. on every on every facet the stillness as well i mean i know it's such a it's become a bit of a cliche to praise an actor's <laughs> stillness <laughs> yeah. um but for him it's, it's it's totally true it's i mean it i, I think that i'm but that's the, confidence, right? The only right? analogy I can think of is De Niro with emotion cycling through a face. Yeah. That's the other actor I see that in. Yeah. And and he does do... Like, I mean, he's got a pretty solid double in the Michael Mann universe. He goes from Mohicans to Heat. Like, and he's a badass as Casals in that. So, you know, it's... Um, oh, he's great. He's wonderful. But it's just like, again, that's the that's the Wes studio of it. He's like, he's in, he's in so many terrific films and everyone everyone is kind of in agreement. Um that he's absolutely wonderful in like every one of the films that he's in, but it's just one of those things that he's kind of this forgotten insane talent. Like he's, he's you know, when people talk about it, like, Oh, he's amazing. But it's just like, he's one of those guys that kind of skated by a real, you know, opportunity to be like lauded critically. Mm, I mean, and we can't deny that a lot of that is due to the the inherent racism of the studio system as well. You know, they probably they probably saw West Studi and Mohicans and and just didn't really know what else to put him in. You know, they couldn't take that imaginative leap of oh, this guy would be really good in this other role. And um, you know, and I'm glad that not, you know, not until Man had him in Heat. Not until much later, right? So you've got yeah, you know, you got he does um, he's in Geronimo and American Legend. Um, he's in Mohicans, he's in Heat, he's in Dances with Wolves, his third role in 1990. Like, huge, wow. huge. Um, and so then he works... He was over... in The Doors before, wasn't he? Like, The Doors, I think, was his first role? No, he's the second role. Indian in the Desert. Ah. He's like, he's like, it's like, like, what? Oh, sorry, sorry. It's like his fourth role total, but it's like Dances with Wolves, The Doors, Mohicans, Geronimo, Heat. You know he's um, yeah he's he's in a lot, and then and then there's massive gaps. There's massive gaps of of things that he's um. Yeah, I was gonna say, do you know what he's doing? Well, the last thing, so the last thing that I saw him in, and I'm just gonna go and find it, is um. Uh, Hostiles with Christian Bale. That was one oh, of the last things I saw him in. I haven't seen that. And he's there's a stack of movies that are all like 2019 in pre-production. 
Um, none of them are leaping out at me um, around, uh, except um, uh, one called the Pipeline, which um, I don't know if that's a doco or if that's like Alaska True Oil thing or a documentary or something like that. But yeah, there's a stack of other films that like all say that he's in them at this moment, um, but they're all in post-production. But the last one I saw him was in Hostiles. And again, he's still absolutely wonderful. Oh, it was incredible. I could watch him for days. And and you probably have in days totaling the amount of times that you've watched this movie. <laughs> I think I have something you um you said about uh just just harking back, it's been playing around my brain. Um something you said about the framing of a particularly people on the ledge shots in mm. that finale. Yes. Um it did remind me that one of the things I love about this finale so much, and the movie in general, may I say, is the way that space is used and the way that every inch of a frame is employed, much in the way that a painter would. I mean, I see those great landscapes and I think, um, you know, um, early American painters like Thomas Cole and Church and the, the scene with Duncan and uh, Cora lunching on the, the meadow. That Amazing. makes me think of Gainsborough. Um, I looked up what, what painters my, uh, Michael Mann said he'd been influenced by, and it was Benjamin West and N.C. Wyeth, who apparently did the, the illustrations for one of the early runs of the books. Um, and it's just so interesting how, because you never see or you rarely see Michael Mann in nature, right? Like the urban environment is his natural habitat. And I just love that his natural environment has been so informed by painters. And there are just scenes where the action takes place in the the very bottom right. You know, Daniel Day-Lewis exits the frame from the final scene, you know, the final confrontation. Um, and he's barely in that frame. His yeah. head is really small in it. He just walks <laughs> right out of the right out of the scene and it's just so beautiful you're talking about where it's, where, well. you're talking about one of my favorite frames and yeah it's nc wyeth paintings as well um uh that are on there and there's some um uh, uh I've, I've actually been talking to um a, a friend of mine that i've made over the internet over the interwebs um which i uh, adore and there's paintings by thomas cole which you were talking about as well um in these incredible you know landscapes um uh, landscape with figures you know a scene from last of the mohicans is a big one there's um some great stuff that i'll, I'll make sure to add um because uh, carly triggered me on it and for those of you who don't know like one of the quintessential heat images um of robert de niro standing against a glass uh, glass wall in his apartment is by alex colville it's an alex colville painting is essentially that frame oh. that sort of distilled that so I'll share that with I'll, I'll post that uh, randomly on your Twitter, Carly, so you can check that out and people can wonder why we're talking while no one actually knows that this is being recorded. Um, why we yet. suddenly become art historians? Well, why are there suddenly a couple of paintings in a thread that have uh, that are coming around? But I, I'll try I'll try to be be subtle with that. Um, but yeah, look, I, I totally agree that there there there's again that there's so much with that landscape that's like it's like boundless and it's oppressive. And it's and it's like staggeringly beautiful, and you kind of silence by it, and it's dwarfing. And then, you know, the characters are in the frame, and they feel like mountains, like themselves. Like when Chingachuk and Magua are in that, you know, that sensational frame, that final face-off between one another. Like mm. they look like mountains of men that are that are there in that frame. But then, there's one really like I'm so glad you brought it up. That frame where. 
Daniel Day-Lewis's character is he's he's met with Corey, he's hugged her, he's looking back over his shoulder, sort of waiting for his father or his adopted father in Chingachgook to come along. And he's in the bottom left-hand frame and there's just this rock, this massive, huge like rock face that's behind him. And there's all these veins in the rock. And I, it's one of the it's one of the frames that's so funny that you said it's one of the frames that deeply moves me when I watch this movie because it's these veins in the rock, these like life cycles that are millennia of millennia of millions of years of existence that that these guys who are just passing through this trio who have just been passing through this war and this you know in this you know sex tet that briefly before it comes back to a trio again you know they're just passing through this existence and um i think it's so profound because like the mountains are still standing and it kind of that's like a bit of a warning. It's like even as these guys pass through, these mountains are still here. These and and they're only just echoes. They're just echoes in these gorges, just like that score. Oh, it's incredible. And I think that it's so easy to say, oh, man likes this painter, so he recreates a painterly <laughs> look on the scene. It's it's so easy to be that that glib about it, but I do think that because of how cerebral he is, he is trying to tell this greater story with that impression. It's no accident you have this giant frame with so much going on, and he's meaning to draw your eye to a certain part of the frame. I notice this most as well in the, the final ambush that happens when Cora and Alice are finally taken um, by Magua, that you, you're meant to be watching Cora in the bottom right of the scene, even as there's all this other carnage going on in this kind and the of few soldiers that are behind them are getting, woodland. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing. It's it's no accident this happens, and it is meant. I think you're exactly right. I think man is trying to tell this wider story of you know human significance and insignificance in a vast landscape, in a vast timescape. I mean, the things that seem so great to us, you know, the interpersonal dramas and the journeys, you know, they all come down to very small pebbles, <laughs> essentially. That is the perfect way that we're going to end this show. Carly, thank you so much for being a part of another one of my crazy journeys. I really appreciate it. It's at Teacup in the Bay. You can find Carly or The Cooler. You search for The Cooler podcast on anywhere that you get your podcast and you'll find Carly's show and her amazing voice. Thank you so much for being part of the last 12 minutes of the Mahikins. Oh, thank you, Blake. And please send my regards to Michael Mann. <laughs> I will indeed. <laughs> I will indeed. <laughs> Thank you to the amazing Carly Severne there. That's at Teacup in the Bay. Um, she's a writer. She makes podcasts for at KQED on the Twitter, which is NPR or PBS in San Francisco. She's also the host of the Cooler Podcast. Um, if you want to check out anything that she's up to, check her out on Twitter. But now for my next guest, a horrendously talented interviewer himself and film journalist from the LA Times, Mr. Mark Olson. Let's have a chat to Mark about all things man and Mohicans. My guest today on this episode of the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans is, look, he's an absolutely terrific podcaster. Um, I wasn't as deeply familiar with his work until I was 
well, completely honored to um, be profiled on the incredible The Real podcast uh, uh, from LA Times. Um, and this man is the host. He's the architect. Uh, we're, we're communicating finally along uh, similar lines now on weekly podcasts around the world, um, which is pretty cool, um, but uh, an extremely talented podcaster. And, a, you know, if, if you weren't already subscribing, you need to. Uh, the man is Mark Olson. Uh, at Indie Focus, Mark. Thank you so much for uh, joining me on something I told you I would never do. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, I had a feeling they weren't going to let you off the hook that easily that it was going to come back around. But I think this project seems just tailor made for you. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. This is you know what's going to be funny. People who are listening, Mark and I are talking. Mark is a very good listener and a very good interviewer. So what's going to happen is Mark is going to flip this multiple times. This is going to be like an examination of what this project is from inside the project. I feel so I'm going to be battling him um, to to get that. But no, thank you, man. And look, I I genuinely, as I told you just before off air, I genuinely did not know this was going to be coming back. I genuinely felt like I'd said everything that I could say. But when you get the opportunity to speak to the great man again about a film you know that the the opportunities is you know better than anyone in the world that it doesn't come along often with a specific focus to talk about another film and a film that is not really like you know it is also it is deeply similar and also drastically different um to his his other oeuvre so it became like this tantalizing thing of like well could i could I turn something that I've done and take it into just a morsel, just give people a very satisfying entree or a little dessert? If one heat minute was a feast, then this is just like a nice little something after dinner, you know, um, uh, you know, to, to sort of satiate the, the Michael Mann podcast. And, uh, well, here we are. Well, I, I think that talking about Last of the Mohicans, the reason I got excited about it when you brought it up to me is for the exact reason that I feel like it is, it's become a little bit of a forgotten movie from man. And in some ways, yes. I think now it almost seems like his most sort of uncool movie, <laughs> yes. aside from, you know, parenthetically, The Keep, which people <laughs> just sort of just forget about as much as possible, since he kind of doesn't like it, apparently. And so I think to, to me, at least, like when people now are talking about man, and I, I understand who I'm saying this to. Because of the fandom and the just intense feelings around Heat, that's kind of overwhelmed man's filmography and the way people think of him. Yes. And so I think I think Mohicans, The Insider, and Ali have become this a little forgotten and like people don't know how to process them as easily as they do, you know, Thief and Manhunter and then Heat and everything that's come after. Yes. So the idea of trying to like come back to Mohicans is something I was really excited about because I know even just for myself, it's one that I kind of tend to overlook or not think about as much. And yet, obviously, it's a great, great film with some of his most impressive, muscular, big budget, proper studio filmmaking. Yeah, and it in the context and you just saying it the context of the 90s you know you know we talk about runs you know people talk about filmmaking runs you and I definitely observe them and what we do is like to hit, to hit a run that is so good as even just the 90s run 1992 Mohicans which was a smash it was in the top 20 films of that year a pretty dense year when you look back at 1992 the 90s which was always thought of the uncool hollywood studio decade everyone now is refre- reflecting now from 2019 and going holy shit actually the 90s every year pound for pound maybe the best movie decade ever like <laughs> ever um but it goes 92 mohicans 95 heat 99 the insider and so completely different 
modes. You know, you've got this big operatic, you know, uh, it's like Barry Lyndon, but way more violent and sexy and, and, and punchy with Mohicans. You've got Heat, which is obviously his signature centerpiece film that is the sort of synthesis of all the themes he'd been exploring, both tel- televisually and in and, and, and short form TV series and films up to that point, really, and from a crime standpoint. And then The Insider, which I think is probably one of his deep, deeply most deeply personal films because, you know, he was one of those young guys at a time when, you know, student activism and radicalism and those sorts of things were really informing his perspectives. You know, he's a guy who lived in London um, during the time of the draft and came back and, you know, was shooting documentary footage of people rioting to get out of service in Vietnam. So, you know, when you, you hook up with Lowell Bergman, who feels like he's on this parallel journey almost like with Michael Mann as a guy who feels like he's doing the right thing and feels like he's still contributing positively and feels like that, but he's losing his grips with um, what 60 Minutes can do from a goodness perspective. And I feel like they're flexing this, he's flexing a 70s paranoia muscle there like nothing else. It's beautiful new Hollywood filmmaking, really as, as good as it gets. And um, But yeah, not a lot of people talk about The Insider anymore, even though it was his most critically lauded. Lots of people talk about heat because, well, the Dark Knight, <laughs> dot dot dot. Um, and uh, but but Mohicans, like it's just extremely an entertaining movie. Lots of older folk because I, I, you know, my day job I work in um, a place with a lot of sort of askews older in people. And if I said the movie Heat to a lot of those folk, they might go Heat, and I'm like, Have you seen Last of the Mohicans? That was a great, like a great water cooler check in, and like, oh yeah, yeah, I've seen Last of Mohicans. Well, the same filmmaker made Heat, and they're like, oh okay, and so it was just you know big period epic crime, and yeah, just so tantalising to talk about because, um, as you might know now, which I only just found out in the last couple of days, Wes Studi, the great Wes Studi is going to be honoured with an honorary Oscar this year. So Oscar winner, Wes Judy, Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, and he's, he's going to be the first Native American actor to be given an, an Oscar. And, you know, that uh, that event, the Governor's Awards, where they give out those those honorary Oscars, oh. it's really become like a high. I've never attended myself, but, I mean, people, it's a very popular event. The talent all really likes to go. Like, I mean, it's a it's it's great to see Wes Judy get that kind of tribute. Yeah, uh, that's... That but it's be- funny when you, when you look back, too, I mean... I I have not checked what the like supporting actor nominees were for the year that Mohicans came out, but I mean for him not to have been nominated, I think it's I mean it's one of those things where it's always easy for us to say in retrospect, but I think at the at the time I mean that that performance and you you can't imagine there were five you know performances that were considered better than that one that year. Uh, it is we're going to do it right now together. It's the 1993 Oscars. And I'm going to go to the nominations because I feel like you and I are well-placed um, uh, now. We haven't done it yet. I've spoken to a few people about it just being like one of those performances that you look back on and go, honestly, how 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 could anyone have beaten him? How could any, like, on, on any level? He's arguably one of the best, one of the best villains ever, a great supporting performance. And in a movie that, like, he just dwarfs Daniel Day-Lewis. Like, that's not to be... Um, that's not to be understated um, in that regard. Wow. It's a good year. It's, oh, it, it is actually um, an all-timer of a year, but I think definitely he could have gotten in there. So the nominees were David Paymer in Mr. Saturday Night as Stan Young. That's definitely a Wes Studio could have taken that over. Al Pacino <laughs> in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross as Ricky Roma. Wow. Talk about big. Hard to argue with that. Hard to argue with that. That's a big one. 
Jack Nicholson, A Few Good Men. Whoa. Okay. Jay Davidson, The Crying Game. That's like, that's the outer left field, but kind of definitely deserves a position to be in there. But Gene Hackman in Unforgiven as Little Bill Daggett won the Oscar that year. So another Western-ish thing because it's the 93 Oscars because uh, of the 92 release. So, you know, Wes Studi didn't even get a shot at, at those guys, but I think it's... I mean, it's not Gene Hackman's best performance as Little Bill Daggett. He's so good in so many other movies. Uh, but and, and actually, Pacino that year, kick him out for Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, because he, he won the Oscar that year as for Scent of a Woman. And uh, I don't know. I, 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 I get a kick out of the idea that he was double nominated. <laughs> I get a kick out of the idea that he lost for like, the most aggressively big performance he did overt, like it's almost got tongue-in-cheek as Ricky Roma, and he won for the one that didn't feel like it had those same levels of self-awareness. So, um, but yeah, no. Wow, what a big year. That was the my my cousin Vinny, Marissa Tomei year, 1993. Unforgiven was, it was, uh, Unforgiven was the, uh, the big winner that year um, all over the place. Wow. But then Mohicans did, it did, it won, it won, it was nominated in one category, I think one in that category, but it was like a sound category. Yes, yes. I think it was um it wasn't best original score, nor was it best original song. Um yes, it was just best sound. So Chris Jenkins, Doug Hemphill, Mark Smith, and Simon Kay, who just did the sound for the movie, won Academy Award. But like I mean I get it. I'm definitely biased to say um Alan Menken's Aladdin score is just wonderful. It's a real joy. But the score for Mohicans is just like, well, I think that's one of the reasons that the ending of the movie in particular really sticks out for people is that so much of it is just that single sustained piece of music that takes you through the last probably like eight minutes or so of the, of the movie. Yes. And it's, it really, it creates such a, just a feeling like it just, I think to me, you know, that the term like pure cinema, like is a little overused, but I like, that the part of what's so exciting about the ending of the movie is the fact that it's the music, the images, the acting, the editing, it all the photography, it all just comes together for something that just is like overwhelming. Like, I mean, it's interesting how there's not even really all that much dialogue in that sequence. No. A lot of it's, you know, playing out. We're just kind of through close ups. We're looking at the people like it's really like there's a lot of, you know, big time acting going on. And so I, I think it's just really exciting. I think this and the score just like brings so much of it out. Yeah. I, I really like what you said about it just being, uh, I, I sometimes, I sometimes am guilty, both guilty of it and also get really tired of pure cinema because I think it's overused um, a lot. But I think that when, when I think the intent is, is exactly what you're saying. It's like, it is actually a chorus of the elements, you know, because you can have a ripping dialogue scene that isn't really doing much in the editing and isn't really giving you something really, you know, um, profound or doing anything to manipulate the soundscape of what you're observing. It's just very much like straight up point and shoot. You're listening to some dialogue unfold and it can be wonderful and languid and delicious dialogue. Like when I think about delicious dialogue, I think about King Schultz in Django Unchained explaining the constellations to the slaves that he's about to free. Like, it's so delicious that it doesn't really have, you know, despite, you know, he's got some great costuming and Tarantino shooting him from the hero angle, nice and low, and he's on a horse. And But 
there's not a lot happening. Like there's some wonderfully beautiful cinematic things that happen in Django, like like slow mo close up sounds. You know, uh, that great shot of Jamie Foxx's Django and his head going through the noose. You know, Robert Richardson and Tarantino framing that through his head to go into the noose when they go into the white town for the first time together. Um, there's lots of cool stuff that happens there. But that specific moment, there's nothing. That, there's a beautiful piece of dialogue, one of the best probably ever written by Quentin Tarantino, and that's saying something. But but in this moment. In you know the last twelve minutes of the Mohicans, there's a heavy dialogue at the beginning when we're contextualizing the judgment from the Huron Sashem about what's going to happen. The beautiful turn from um, Steve Waddington's Duncan, um, you know, self-sacrificially sort of passing, uh, you know, passing uh, Cora to Hawkeye and 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 uh, taking taking one for the team in the biggest possible way, so tragically and epically. But it's it's everything that you said. It's it's the look. It's when a character's looking at something, then someone look registers that they're looking at something, and look they look as well. And then the camera moves to show what they're looking at, and and not having to say anything. And then there's a gesture of knowing what's going to be happening. There's lots of wordless, like a nod and a throw. These guys are on the hunt. They're hunters. They speak. You know, they communicate wordlessly. But I just think the the it's it is that energetic chorus of all those things that you talked about the music is phenomenal the actors are all conveying stuff they don't need to really say any words the cuts are furious without being disorientating because it really sets the scene for you and then it builds the pace with cuts and it sets the scene it builds the pace with cuts um and just yeah just everything about it it's just magnificent and i think that's why i've had so much fun again on a michael mann movie focusing really heavily on 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 those elements that you talked about yeah, because the, I mean, I think especially the, just the geography of it. Once you get up onto that that ridge, yes, I mean, you get such a. First of all, I, I I mean, I've seen some of the production photos, so I have some sense of like how many people were really up there and <laughs> yes. everything. But like, it seems like there's a bunch of people on like basically like a tabletop. Like it's not <laughs> yes. a big yes. space, and so you just wonder like. How, you know, where is the camera? Where is all the crew? How are they like managing to convey, to get all these people and have all this action happening on this very tiny space that also is essentially a cliff? Like they're like, it's terrifying, like what they're, you know, like how how perilous it feels yeah it's really it's really great to look at some of those behind the scenes i think we're probably thinking about the same ones there's some great ones in the fx feeney um Mm -hmm. uh, tabletop book of michael mann um there's that and and speaking to dante spinotti there's nets so like literally as you go off the cliff (laughs) they've hired some really incredible engineers and all the people that are in support and the stunt coordinators and stuff to like anchor like huge nets that are out of sight, like over the edge from what we're actually viewing at the times that we're viewing it and just being super careful about how they're going to shoot it. But yeah, you're so right. It's like, not only is it perilously tight, but so much of it, especially in those scenes around Uncas and Alice's uh, demise, there, there's water running. And so it's slippery. And I, I just imagine like, not only is it dense, not only is it like rough ground, not only is it these like little tiny carved pathways through like this, the into looking down into these huge chasms below. But yeah, it's it's wet as well. It's just like, I'll just add another layer of something dangerous to this this already incredible sequence. 
I think it's on the uh, the like the making of piece that's part of the the American Blu-ray. Man quite proudly declares that no one got hurt. Yes, like he's really excited to say that no one got hurt making this movie because it seems like it should be such a dangerous movie to have made. Absolutely, and what I I won't spoil for any others. But if you, this is the first episode that you're listening to, the last twelve minutes of the Mohicans, thank you so much for listening. There's going to be a twelve episode series, so you're going to go back and you can listen to other episodes. I strongly recommend that you listen to the episode featuring Mr. Dante Spinotti, none other than the legendary cinematographer um, of Michael Mann, because Dante tells a story about how perilously close that statistic uh, came to not being true. And I'm not going to say any more than that on this show because I will demand that people go back and listen and let him tell it. But I was, uh, if, if you hear anything going off mic like a knock, it's my jaw hitting the table as he's telling me this story. So really incredible stuff there. And now I, I have to, I'm, I'm going to do it. I have to ask you, Blake, when you were talking to Dante, did he talk about the way that he came on to, the movie because it's fascinating and yes. I'm sorry if you've already covered no, this. No, no, Mark, was you, you're ne- one of the only people that know this. I didn't know this, and this is how well researched Mark is. So he's great. So please tell people if they ha- if they don't know because this is uh, he he was very candid about how it happened. There was another director of photography, Doug Milsom, who man fired because he they weren't getting along. It wasn't working yes. out. And I'm not – I don't know exactly at what point in the shoot that it happened, and he replaced him with Spinotti. I mean there was a there was a great story in the LA Times. You can find it online from May of 1992 that's about how sort of like tumultuous this production was, the fact that there was a, a – the costume designer quit because he couldn't deal with – Man, man, obviously fired a DP to then hire Spinotti. There was a few other, you know, there were some issues with comp- composers and getting that score. And so it's, I mean, I, I can't wait to hear that Spinotti interview to hear about what that was like. Uh, you just added the final bit that I didn't know at the time because I've been trying to look for it. And obviously, thank thank God for a trade like the LA Times in this moment. But I'll <laughs> definitely put it in the description of this episode that you guys are listening to now because Doug Milsom, for people who don't know, was a cinematographer most famously on Highlander, on Full Metal Jacket, on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So he's a guy who's worked with Kubrick. I've made that joke a few times and I'm like, oh my God, that's actually, you know, semi-true. Um, uh, a big part of it from what I understand, and I'll, I'll you'll hear it in more detail in the Dante episode, is just time. So um, Milsom's uh, uh, technical uh, approach was very much to be very deliberate with some of the lighting that was happening in these really heavily wooded areas. And it was every setup, everything was taking a tremendous amount of time from what I understand. And so um, when you come on, you see Dante Spinotti take um, a lot more of a, you know, a a Zygmunt-esque approach, if you like, of just using the natural light and just making very calculated subtle adjustments to really emphasize faces and close-ups and get into those moments but using the natural light so speed was um speed was key and obviously working Mm. with michael mann he knew they had a very good relationship to do that but um i'll let you i'll there is like a point where you go and you will never be able to watch all i'll tease um and i'll tell you mark offline but i'll tease for you (laughs) is like you can you can see it like you can see where the cinematography gets different. And there are other moments that have been since picked up in what I would say like second unit pickup shooting or whatever the case may be. But um, but definitely you can see the difference. And, and Dante tells you exactly where he comes on. 
Well, the, I mean, obviously we're talking about the end of the movie, but the opening of the movie, it really is so painterly. And I know that Mann has talked about how he used, you know, 18th century landscape painting as like his main visual reference. And you can really see that, especially in that opening hunting sequence. Yes. It really just looks like paintings. I mean, it's unbelievable. And it's funny. I mean, it's one thing to be watching it now on a, on a Blu-ray, imagining being in a theater in 1993 with just like a sweet brand new 35 millimeter print. print. I mean, those images must've just looked stunning or something like the, the siege of the fort. I mean that the photography on that sequence is just incredible. Yeah. And, and you know, the, just the fight, like even the firelight sequences in the fort, just how incredible that is. The Albany sequence where Magua is just shrouded in darkness in the background. And then, you know, pops out when he's called because they're not using internal lights because it's during the daytime that they're having the meetings with the colonials just really clever decisions and uh yeah and 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 the most i guess the most sort of surreal and deliberately next stage setting that feels a little bit alien is the in, internal uh, sort of the belly of the waterfall if you like the bowels of the waterfall because it's um yeah just incredible incredibly different you know incredibly different shot the most michael man blue usage happens in that sequence um as we're both fans of uh but uh yeah it's a, it's it's one of those really terrific really terrific things it's so funny how even just the packaging of the blu-rays that the obviously the original poster that shot of you know daniel day lewis sort of charging at people there was really much more orange yes and even the original like dvd cover was essentially that shot with that same sort of color scheme and i get a kick out of the fact that like now the blu-ray they've it's blue like yeah. they've, like they've... <laughs> they 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 did they fixed it the ultimate cut is uh like bluish green background and and uh um uh, the australian release is the bluish green background with um the the great daniel day lewis in front so this ending, Mark, talk to me about, you know, is this an old timer for period movies of the like for you? What 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 gets you more about this ending? Is it moment to moment? I wonder from a story perspective too. You know, for this story, you know, you're you're, you're a well researched guy, so you would have seen that this is Michael Mann's greatest American hero. What are your feelings about, you know, relenting the mantle, so to speak, of this great American hero in the final act of the movie? to like change the entire audience's expectations because I'm still really blown away by it when I look at it and reflect and I and I'm really keen for every new guest of this new podcast to talk about like how how that baton pass happens and how just effortless and really smart it is. Well, that's the thing that I think is so amazing about Lewis's performance is that I mean, it's funny some of the stuff that I was reading, the period pieces that I was looking back and reading from when the movie came out, definitely people wrote about the fact that it was so sexy and that Dana Day Lewis, <laughs> you know, spends a fair amount of time with his shirt off and no one's complaining. And it's funny that he, like his, <laughs> his hair, it's like this weird sort of like Bono, like long, like there's something like rock and rollerish about the way that his hair is. And so, 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 comes, so, so for everyone listening, like I've just recently had a very short haircut and, and I've did, I've done that deliberately. Mark's got a little bit longer hair, but it, the Daniel Day Lewis in Last of the Mohicans has caused many of my bad, I should grow my hair decisions in my life. I can unequivocally say that it's just like this, he, it's, he's beautiful. Like, and he's so magnificent looking. Uh, it, it also obviously helps that 
um, Madeline Stowe is deeply striking. Like it's an incredibly striking woman to look at. And that there was a matching going on there with like, they wanted to, to them to sort of complement each other in a really, in a really special way. But I just look at his hair and I'm just like, and he's there and he's attractive and, what are you looking at, sir? I'm looking at you, miss. I'm like, oh, I'm never going to be that cool, Mark. I'm never in my life going to be that cool. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, who is? <laughs> that's it. Thank you. You've at least helped me. Well, who is going to be cool? But no. but the the way in which the, you know, I think that that character is, is such an archetype. And I know that Mann's talked about this. One of the things that really drew him to the character is that, mm. you know, that's sort of like, stoic western all-american go-it-alone kind of person yes Uh, and so to see you know daniel day lewis in that role i think he's it's such a tremendous performance from him and he really makes something of it but then to think about it even moving forward it's funny i just i just published a story that i wrote about the new film coming out called ad astra that stars brad pitt yes And, and that Itself, that that movie and Brad Pitt's performance really purposefully takes on a lot of this sort of like all-American, masculine sort of ideals. And it, it was interesting to have just been thinking about that movie and that performance and then to come to Mohicans and realize, you know, what Daniel Day-Lewis is doing with that and what the the character of Hawkeye, like so much of like the ideas that we have of like what American men should be like, I think come from that character and and – and, and from this story, and, and I think still has like a really lasting like hold on the American imagination. Yeah, I, and I think, you know, when you talk about great working filmmakers today that are that are uh, that are preoccupied in the best possible sense with portrayals of masculinity, James Gray is a guy that is fascinating, and 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 mm-hmm. has made a litany of great great movies. And um, by all accounts, Ad Astra is, um, is, is, is another terrific film. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you said that because it's exciting. And I think of James Gray in that same, like, you know, he's kind of simmering along. James Gray is going to have his day just like Michael Mann is is seemingly having it now. And James Gray is going to be that guy in 10 years, 15 years. And there's a couple of filmmakers I think of like that, that people are going to go, how did we miss this guy? (laughs) How did we miss this guy? And it's like, well, it happens. There's, they just, sometimes they're great filmmakers and they're just doing great work and they're, you know, very deliberate in their choices and, and uncompromising. And yeah, he's, he's one of those guys, that's for sure. But again, it's one of the things that's so interesting about Mohicans in particular for Michael Mann is that it points a way towards a whole different career, a whole different way of thinking about him. I think the fact that he went from Mohicans to then making Heat and Heat caught on the way that it did, that that's the filmmaker we think of when we think of Michael Mann is yes. the, the crime filmmaker, the, the stylish urban dramatist. I have sat down and interviewed Michael Mann one time, and it was for when Black Hat was coming out. And I was really trying to put, you know, to me, the thing that I find fascinating about him now is the fact that I think of him almost as like a theorist. Like, I feel like his ideas about how to make a movie are so next level and so past what so many other people are, are doing. You know, his his the way he uses close-ups now, his cutting, just where he wants to put the camera, it's yes. so just different from everybody else. And in that interview, he specifically, and he, you know, he always doesn't like talking about style specifically. He, he If you try to call him a stylist, <laughs> he kind of like bristles a bit. But he specifically, the one thing he sort of allowed is he, he said, you know, he specifically said, 
I wouldn't make a movie like Last of the Mohicans now. My ideas about how to make a movie are, are different. Yes. And so I want to do different things. But at the same time, I feel like it's, to me, what it speaks to with Mohicans is like, well, how else was he going to tell that story? Like it, the the style that he chose to shoot and the way that he told the story, you know, based on classical painting and things like that, it makes the most sense for the movie that it is and for the story that he's telling. So I think where we always want to think that he's kind of applying, you know, the Michael Mann style to whatever story he is, I think it actually, the style is, comes much more organically from the story. Yeah, I think that's totally true when you look at these three films in contrast to one another particularly. So I think because he operates in the crime genre, people can make easier observations um if you if you keep a limited view of his career exclusively to the crime films to say oh he these are tropes and things he likes to do these are you know uh, uh match cuts that he likes to do these are certain uh um, motifs that he likes to explore but like you said if you look at if you go if you went to the new hollywood paranoia playbook the insider does everything that a new hollywood paranoia movie does and it does it in a modern way, like it does it in a completely modern way, and it absolutely deals with more phil- different philosophical motifs that that we're used to, and has Michael Mann's like I don't know, sort of off kilter needle drop approach to music, and you know, uh, you know, giving people just you know like bruce mcgill like a centerpiece single scene and a half for in two and a half hours you know to just, like bruce you're coming in for two days and i need you to just knock this out of the park and just like raise the heart rate of everyone in the movie who's you know following this along and investigating but yeah mohicans is like you know and it's also in the context of his filmmaking um in the context of his filmmaking approach, it's also like his favorite movie from when he was a kid. It was a movie that blew his mind as a young man. And so when he's approaching it, he still wants the romance. He still wants the magic of movie making. He still wants to look to his heroes and make this big Hollywood epic because he wants to shoot it like they would. And you can just sort of start drawing their allusions to like, well, he wanted to make it like that. He wanted to do it like this. And Warner Brothers had at least the faith in him to give him some cash um, to make that happen. Um, but yeah, some really... Um, there's some really key sort of elements there where you're like, well, these are these are why they're different. I I love this this decade and even the next. Ali is Ali is a stunning movie. It's mm-hmm. deeply underappreciated. I love that you added it in this little quartet of his um his movies because and I also think that you know people are now reflecting like Will Smith's a pretty good actor and it's like yeah <laughs> well yeah he like this was his best performance. There was no one better that year. Eleven months he spent voice training to inhabit the most famous sporting person who's ever walked the face of the earth, like the most famous character, like character, caricature, sports icon. And he did it for 11 months and inhabited him and in this really beautifully structured biopic that is deeply authentic and, um, you know, reflects on the context of time in a way that other biopics only just kind of started to figure out but did it in a way clunky and less delicate way. Um, so yeah, it's a, that's you know he's flexing a whole mus- a bunch of different muscles there too. He's still he's even touching on some of that inside a new Hollywood paranoia, but he's also being really raw about the action, and it's a, it's more restrained and authentic from being, you know those in the ring POV shots. Great stuff there too. 
Yeah, well, in the FX Feeney book, there's what is my favorite photo of Michael Mann is one from the production of Ali, <laughs> yeah, where it's how, another one. <laughs> yeah, he's he's in the ring. He himself is holding this custom designed camera that just fits in the palm of his hand, and he couldn't be any closer. And it, I mean, I think <laughs> the idea that he, as a filmmaker, wants to be in the ring with his actors, with the story, with the action, he wants to be right up there close, have that immediacy and that intimacy. And he's trying, he wants it for himself. And then he wants to sort of like convey that to audiences. And to me, that's what the sort of the change in his filmmaking, you know, pushing forward to what he did in Black Hat. I think that's what a lot of that, what feels very jarring now is I think it's what it's about. It's about creating that immediacy. Because when I was watching Mohicans, the movie I kept thinking about was actually Public Enemies because I kept thinking like, like in making a historical drama, like he he wouldn't, you know, the style of public enemies is such that it tells this more rough and tumble story and it brings this immediacy to it. And that's why he told the story that way. Where with Mohicans, again, he wanted this sense of scale. He wanted this grandeur. He wanted this sort of stateliness to it. I mean, it's funny earlier when you mentioned Barry Lyndon, like it's funny that this is like the action movie version of it is. Barry Lyndon deeply, somehow. Deeply. Um, I was going to say that there's a really great author who was part of the One Hit Minute podcast, and I'd be remiss not to mention him at this moment. You talked about Public Enemies because I think one of his reading in Public Enemies is probably one of my favorites. His name's Niall Schwartz, um, and uh, he talks in his uh, sort of monograph about Public Enemies about the digital way that that movie is shot is like completely reinforcing the messaging of the like the end of an era and the sort of omnipresence of. I guess what you call like shared intelligence um, and, mm-hmm. and even like shared criminal networks where like there's that great scene um, where John, John Ortiz, another Michael Mann uh, alum for a few movies where he's like, you know, we make more money in like one afternoon than you do, you've made in your whole career of robbing banks, like sort of cut this shit out in, in a way. Like it's a, one of those great scenes. But I think that that's the, there's this, using digital technology to tell that story that has the reinforcing of this like last of days of of the old school bank robber this omnipresence of like culture with movies plus the omnipresence of like shared intelligence across a national entity to take away these kind of outlaws you know they're outmoded and literally like michael mann is like outmoding film by going completely digital going completely holistic and and using these digitized tools to play um in in public enemies yeah he's got a great reading of it so if you get a chance i'll make sure i add that to the description you guys can check that out too but niles is um yeah it's a real gem um and that yeah that reading i think you're you're spot on too it's like these are the modes of storytelling for their medium for the thematic as as much as a thematic underpinning as it does a technical one but it's interesting to hear you talk about that idea of like the end of an era with regards to public enemies because i know that, I think, again, is part of what makes the ending of Last of the Mohicans so powerful is that for every one of those characters, like it's been set up in so many ways that they are the last of their family line. Like, so yes. whichever one of those characters dies, like it has serious consequences, both for them as a person, but also for this idea of sort of lineage. And, and you know, they all are the last of something. And then when it gets to those just stunning final shots and, it, you know, the camera just takes in that beautiful, big, sweeping vista, it, it is like they're all sort of like looking towards the future. And that's what we're sort of like left to like 
think about and what what we're looking at and what's coming for all you know all of us as we're as we're watching that movie and i think it's it's again it's like it's interesting where like the the it's very human scaled like at the intimate sort of level of those people but because of the grandeur of that national park and what we're looking at, like it just gets this scale that just makes it just monumental. Yeah. I, I think there's, you know, there's something kind of, and it's, I like to say this about Michael Mann, nothing is an accident. And so I think that there's something, um, I, I like to think of it like as like a megaphone where you've kind of, something is, something is helping you funnel the, to, to, to exponentially sort of give, give something volume. And I think that the, the fact that there's this like drop in this ocean of of frontier, um, it kind of does do things. It absolutely dwarfs them. But when you flip it around, it's got that effect, that explosive, expansive effect of like these emotions are written on the biggest possible canvas, and they need to be the loudest notes of those emotions. And um, and and it's that you know triple emphasis, right? It's like you know the, to the power of three in that moment of like he's the last of his line. Jingatagook's the last of the Mohicans. Cora's the last of her line um and and really the whole intent of chingachikook and his boys being uncas and hawkeye in this movie um and i say that because my you know a, a guest of the show and a, a friend uh, mr matt zola zeitz he says whoever says the title of the movie is who the movie's about so this is really chingachikook's movie i would argue that it's margo's movie probably more than chingachikook but uh, there we go um but there's a moment where um they're all realistically these guys are just just happen to be digressing across the continent and they they take a pit stop into the french indian war and it's the summer of 1757 um so in this moment when they're here and they're taking stock of being entangled which is ultimately what none of them wanted um in in this in this you know literal superpower fracas that's happening on the american continent to build this to build this place out um, and to sort of squash its native population, these three people who are left, and that's, the, that's one of the things I love about the sending too is we've we've we adopt the the trio of Chingachukuk's trio, and then you know Cora, Duncan, and Alice. They they adopt one another, and they are a unit, even though they're split for the rest of the movie. As soon as they become adopted, and it's in this last ten minutes where, in such a way that the stakes and the consequences become real so fast that it's both completely overwhelming and then necessitates the the pivot to this like triumphant sort of clash that it ultimately is tragic because the the tragedy is so immediately close so it's just really great i don't know it's a, it, I, i'm feeling rewarded by talking to you mark and all the people on this show about this ending it deserves la- like it, from a craft perspective from an emotional perspective from you know in his oeuvre it doesn't it can't be lost because you know he's 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 an incredible filmmaker, and this is just one really, this really interesting period flex. It makes you wish that he made more period films just in general. Oh, I mean, yeah, I'd agree with that. But I think that the, it would, you know, again, I think it this movie in particular to me, like, points to so many other Michael Manns. Like, he could, and it, I think it shows <laughs> yeah. him to, I think the fact that we've he's become so well-known for like the thing for the thing that he does for the sort of the heat style urban crime drama that i mean i think he is a much more versatile filmmaker than that and i think that's the thing that i think when you think about mohicans and insider and ali and then you know 
Heat and Public Enemies and Black Hat and Thief and and those movies, it just it presents him as such a more sort of like total filmmaker and someone who's capable of so much more. I mean, obviously, he's. It's funny there was a, a one interview with him. I think David Anson did in Newsweek where they asked him. It was for Mohicans what his next project was going to be, and all man would allow is that it was a contemporary film, and then you know. <laughs> Anson wrote, presumably not a comedy. And I think that's like the only thing that like probably man will never do is like make a comedy. But other than that. I laugh a lot in Mohicans. I laugh a lot in Heat. I laugh a lot. Vincent Hanna is a scream. He's a scream. The dialogue's so direct. I don't know how you can't have so much fun with the dialogue in Mohicans. You know, it's like, I think you and I are going to have a very serious disagreement. Like, you know, it's cool, but it's very direct and fun. I don't know. Maybe it's because I've watched it so many times. I just love it. I just love it. Uh, Look, I think that's the perfect way for us to close. It's definitely not going to be a comedy. I think that's one of my favorite lines that has been said in any of the episodes so far. Mr. Mark Olson from the LA Times and from The Real Podcast, thank you so much for being a part of the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. A pleasure and a treat to talk to you. At Indie Focus, you'll find Mark on Twitter. I'll link him and tag him into everything that you can see. Um, And I want to thank him now on this podcast because I didn't get a chance to do it in this feed. But if you do get a chance to go back, um, it's probably one of my – Mark caught me at – you know, right on the precipice of the finale of One Heat Minute, just before anyone had known about it, we had an absolute treat talking to one another. And uh, everyone who talked to me almost had more fun listening to Mark and I talk about the finale of One Heat Minute than listening to it. Um, so I want to thank him very much um, uh, from the bottom of my heart for, for firstly covering and following and your support. But thank you so much for that interview. It was a real treat to do with you. Um, and oh, all the lovely sure. things thank you, you said. You.